0: This is Talk of the Town, and I'm Bob Cudmore. The topic, the 50th anniversary of the first humans on the moon. You're listening to Magic 590 plus 100.5. We're heard in the North Country on 1410 and 96.9. In a few minutes, we'll talk with Kurt Brenneman, Dean of Science at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy. Right now, we're joined by author Rod Pyle, who's written a new illustrated book, First on the Moon, describing the July 1969 mission that put Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon. Rod Pyle is a writer for the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory and a frequent speaker at science and technology conferences. Can you give us an overview of the Apollo 11 mission?
1: So this was a program that had started in 1961 when... President Kennedy first announced we were going to go to the moon. In eight very short years, we managed to develop this hardware, overcome a couple of setbacks with accidents like the Apollo 1 fire, orbit the moon in 1968 with Apollo 8, and then finally land there with Apollo 11 in 1969, July of that year. Just an incredible achievement, even from today's perspective. As I look back, it's almost harder for me to believe now that we pulled that off with 19. 50s, 1960s technology than it was at the time. It's just an incredible landmark.
0: Mm. But you mentioned that uh, President Kennedy and his idea of this moonshot was it was more driven by geopolitics uh, and the a race or competition with the Soviet Union, was it not?
1: That's absolutely right, uh, and uh, it's, it's good to hear you say that because a lot of people don't really understand it. Um, there's this sense uh, in the intervening years, this developed as well, Kennedy loves space and he loves science and so forth. And he certainly was interested in those things, but he wasn't that interested in spending almost 5% of the federal budget to get to the moon. What he was concerned about was how the Soviet Union was making us looking like we were standing still. They had been the first to orbit a satellite. They had been the first to orbit a human in space the time that kennedy made this announcement in 1961 we had a grand total of 15 minutes of suborbital spaceflight we hadn't, hadn't even reached orbit so this was truly a brash and audacious goal which may be one of the reasons that it worked um, and it was very geopolitical in nature we wanted to make sure that non-aligned nations looked at the us and saw a better deal than they did with the soviets and so that's really what this was about it was the one thing we thought we could do before they did
0: and you said that You know, of the technology of today, uh, maybe this is a more doable goal. Back then, they were kind of going beyond what uh, their technology uh, provided them. What were some of the problems the mission encountered? There was a balky computer that nearly shut down during lunar descent?
1: Yeah, so they had uh, undocked in lunar orbit, and there was a little bit of residual air in the docking tunnel that NASA hadn't accounted for. And it sort of popped like a champagne cork when the two spacecraft separated, the lunar module and the Apollo capsule. So that sent them a few miles downrange. So they're already off target. Now the lunar module is coming down, getting ready for a landing. There's radar data coming back from the surface. They also had left their radar on in case they had to abort their upward-looking radar to acquire the, the capsule in orbit. So there's too much information going in the computer. And this remember, this is a 36K computer. It's barely enough to run a digital watch today. <laughs> so it starts flipping out and displaying these error codes. And nobody knew what they meant. The two astronauts, Armstrong and Aldrin, are looking, saying, what the heck is a 1202 code? The computer's no longer giving them their range of the surface and their speed and all that. So they call down a mission control. The guys at the mission control are scrambling to look through their binders to try and figure out what it is. One guy in the back room, Jack Garman, who supports mission control, said, I know what that is. It's not critical. Keep going. So basically, it's a piece of code inserted by a very clever woman at MIT named Margaret Hamilton that said, if you start to get too much to do, disregard the unimportant stuff and just concentrate on getting them down the surface. And that kind of software design was revolutionary at that time. So it was really an incredible advance, and I'm very glad they had it or they would have had to abort.
0: (laughs) Right. Also, one of the astronauts accidentally broke the ascent engine switch that would uh, get them uh, off the surface of the moon?
1: Yeah, as Armstrong was leaving the uh, cabin of the lunar module after they sat down on the lunar surface, he was trying to maneuver through this narrow hatch. It was barely big enough for him to get his bulky suit out of. And as he was doing so, a switch snapped off, but they couldn't hear it, of course, because they were in a vacuum of the moon. When they got back to the lunar module and repressurized, they found this little plastic tab and realized they had broken the arming breaker switch for the ascent engine. So they called down to NASA and said, hey, we've got about eight hours before we've got to leave. What do you want us to do? Because the switch has snapped off. So the engineers went through this big rigmarole to figure out a workaround. But when the time came, Buzz Aldrin, who was, of course, up there in the Lem, looked at the broken switch, pulled the felt tip pen out of his pocket, jammed it in the Mm -hmm. socket, reset the switch, and saved the Apollo 11 mission for $0.39. So that's a pretty good deal.
0: I guess so. We're talking with Rod Pyle, uh, his uh, book First on the Moon. I'm from Amsterdam, New York, which is the hometown of Rocco Petrone, who was the uh, flight director. Did Did you know him, or maybe you're way too young for any of this?
1: I was too young for that, and he was uh, the senior guy at the launch complex, so he was running it in Florida, and then once the rocket departed and actually left, cleared the gantry, then Control switched over to Mission Control where the flight directors were, but Patron was a very forceful, no-nonsense, if-you-crossed-him-you-better-watch-out kind of guy, Mm -hmm. very powerful manager, and and one of a handful of people that really, we don't hear about much, these guys at the top of senior management, but one of the handful of people that really made this program the success it was, an amazing man.
0: Mm. And there was another local angle, if you'll indulge me, a man from Perth, New York, named Stanley Jevett was one of the engineers, and his family swears that there's a plaque on the moon with his name and other names on it. But I had talked to NASA when we first did a story on that, and they said, well, they can't confirm if anybody actually put a, a, you know, might not even have been on Apollo 11.
1: Uh, They left a bunch of stuff behind in a a couple of those missions. There was a uh, silicon wafer with a bunch of names engraved on it, but I think they were the Fallen astronauts and pilots and so forth that had died in, in the endeavor. There was a, a little statue, aluminum statue called the fallen I think, Fallen astronaut or, or fallen aviator that was left behind uh, in commemoration of the astronauts and cosmonauts that had died during the 1960s. Not familiar with the particular gentleman you're talking about, but it wouldn't surprise me if something was left behind. We don't know exactly what might've been left there because of course, before they departed, they tossed anything they didn't need out of the lunar module onto, onto the surface to try and save weight. So what might have been written on one of those scraps of a flight plan or a piece of paper, we'll never know.
0: Hmm. Was the moon landing program worth the effort?
1: Well, if you're asking me, absolutely. If you're asking sociologists and economists, yes. Uh, the best estimates I've seen are between 15, uh, $14 and $15 was returned for every dollar invested in Apollo. Um and that's just raw economics, because remember, the money isn't shoveled into a capsule and, and launched into space. It's spent on Earth. It's spent at, on NASA employees. It was spent on aerospace companies, machinists, the, the woman working at the bar and grill down the street. I mean, this money all went back into the local and regional and national economies. And this program really inspired, and this is directly traceable, at least two generations of people to go into STEM fields and science and engineering and technology. Mm. And that's something that we really need again today because we are falling behind in those fields. And a program like this, which is Artemis, which is NASA's newest undertaking, will help to re-energize that sector big time.
0: What is Artemis before you go?
1: Artemis is the Trump administration's return to the moon initiative to land American astronauts on the moon again by 2024 men and women this time. And the idea is that we're going there to set up shop and stay. We're going to go to the lunar South Pole where there's water ice, which you can, of course, make into a rocket fuel and breathable air and drinkable water. And these are all things that are very heavy to launch. So if you can find them on the moon, that's a big step towards getting to Mars. Mm.
0: And it'll be crowded up there. China wants to go India, private <laughs> industry.
1: Yeah. And the Russians are saying they're going to go. So it could be a lot of folks up there. We probably have some treaty building to do before that time. Because we do have an outer space treaty that precludes people from claiming the moon for their country, but we do want to be able to have the rights to use those resources. So there's going to have to be some large and wide conversations on this topic in the next couple of years.
0: Rod Pyle, I thank you for joining us. Again, his book is called First on the Moon.
1: Have a good day. Thank you very much. You too.
0: Joining us is Dr. Kurt Brenneman, professor of chemistry and dean of the School of Science at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. I've sort of calculated knowing your birth date. You were about 14 when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. Did it have a big impact on you?
2: Yes. uh, The landing and all of the missions that led up to the landing uh, made a tremendous impression on me, uh, and I would say shaped my destiny in a way. Um, from that point on, I knew I I needed to be a scientist because I wanted to work on things larger than what I could do myself alone. And I was always fascinated with technology, but it uh, tended to focus that even more. Uh, I still have a vivid memory of, of watching it on the black and white TV and and uh, you know seeing that fuzzy. Uh, mm-hmm outline of, of Neil Armstrong stepping off the limb.
0: Wow. Did you ever want to be an astronaut?
2: Well, actually, it's interesting. Uh, from the astronaut perspective, I, I knew what they had to go through. And so that particular piece didn't, uh, you know, that wasn't going to be my destiny. However, uh, in more recent years, I've said that if, you know, if I had a chance to, say, go up on the shuttle when it was operating, I would say, take that in the in a minute.
0: Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. Before we started, I'd mentioned to you that um, during my radio life, I interviewed uh, Alan Meltzer, I believe a professor of physics at RPI and astronomer, uh, many times. And he and I talked about the space program, and we both said that. Like when I was interviewing uh, Dr. Meltzer, uh, he was, um, it was about the time of the uh, what, they, what do they call it, the Journalist in Space Program. So he was encouraging yeah. me to apply for that. Of course, I've always been kind of a large, flabby man, so I don't know if that would have worked.
2: Well, you never know. Uh, you know, they 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 have a lot of firsts uh, that they were working on <laughs> at the time, so you never can tell. Um, I know that uh, there's been a lot of history at Rensselaer related to the Apollo program, which I was unaware of when I first came here, but I've become aware of in subsequent uh, Mm. years. And uh, it's amazing. Even uh, a friend of mine uh, on the faculty of the chemistry department, uh, Dr. Harry Wiedemeyer, actually had more uh, space uh, microgravity experiments uh, than pretty much any other PI at one point. Uh, And that was fascinating in itself. But then, of course, we... We also had our and have our legacy of, of George Lowe, who was actually a uh, yes. person at NASA who really made the transition from the disaster of the Apollo 1 fire on the pad to being able to actually get uh, Apollo capsules up there and the missions uh, going forward, starting with uh, you know the first uh, manned one seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then of course, we were all extremely impressed by, by everything that took place. After that,
0: mm. and George Lowe what became president of Rensselaer, right? Or...
2: That's right. He was not only a student here, uh, but he was he became president uh, after his uh, uh, stint at NASA, and um, in fact, we have a lot of his legacy here, including the the Low Gallery uh, of which is kind of a museum of his papers and contributions uh, to the Apollo program, specifically.
0: Mm. And you mentioned something. About one of the professors being a PI? I, I don't know what that means.
2: PI means principal investigator. And for example, a lot of times there are experiments uh, that go up on pretty much every space mission. And a certain, uh, say, faculty member or scientist will be the principal investigator or lead for that particular element of the mission. And so, uh, you know, uh, that's what I was referring to there. Mm-hmm. Sure. In fact, we we've had uh, multiple uh, RPI faculty be PIs on, say, microgravity experiments on the International Space Station and also on the shuttle and other places.
0: With with the students today, are they still as interested in space, or is that uh, y- uh, yesterday's stuff?
2: Keeps on evolving. I think the expectations keep getting larger. For example. Around the time when I was a kid watching the early development of, say, the Mercury uh, spacecraft, it was completely out of the question that we would ever be able to see what Pluto looked like up Mm -hmm. close. And, of course, now we've had a probe fly by uh, close enough to take an intimate portrait of it. And, uh, you know, that's simply one of those kinds of missions where the setting of expectations has just moved farther and farther out in, in the universe And so I would say that uh, there's a great draw, uh, not only from the engineering side here, uh, spacecraft guidance and all sorts of other things going on in our School of Engineering, but also on what might be out there. We have a NASA Center for Astrobiology uh, that has just been uh, funded uh, again, and it's really going to, to take off this time, and we're looking for life in extreme environments on Earth to understand what we might have to look for out there.
0: Mm. Well, let me—I'm not being whatever a smarty pants—but uh, what role would a chemist play in uh, in space exploration?
2: Well, that's that's a very good question, and I would just like to circle back to what I just mentioned. Um, there was around the time I came to Rensselaer in the late '80s. There was a program that had started here, which was in fact uh, started by a chemist, uh, Professor Jim Ferris, which was the the Center for the Origins of Life. And in fact, that uh, used a number of components of chemistry to try to understand what some of the um, biological and chemical biological processes might have been in the early Earth, for example, that would have yielded something what we called RNA world life. Fast forward to, to today, now we have a major center. We're actually under construction today, and it's a good thing that uh, they stopped the drills, otherwise you <laughs> might have been hearing it down right. the hall here. This is going to be a major opening in in October, where we've now taken that to the next level, and it's geochemistry, chemistry, biochemistry, earth and environmental science, and a lot of other fields that are combined together.
0: Mm. I asked uh, Rod Pyle, our previous uh, guest, uh, about this. You know, uh, And, of course, he, he, he's written the book First on the Moon, and he, I believe, is employed by NASA. I mean, he works at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So he certainly answered yes. But uh, the question was, was it worth it going to the Moon?
2: I believe it absolutely was. This didn't take me uh, much thought to think of this. And it, it's not just because of one thing. It's because of actually a plethora of benefits that have come from it. Uh, If you recall the history of the time, we actually undertook originally this as a national show of engineering prowess, that we could do this and we could do it in a limited amount of time. But pretty much as soon as that was something that we were thinking that we really could do, the science element of it came into being. In fact, even on the very first moon landing, there were at least two major scientific experiments that were set up uh, on the moon next to, well, a little little removed from where they put the flag, a little farther away from the, um, from the ascent module. And uh, one of them was a passive uh, seismic system that they could actually watch the moon for moonquakes. And the other is a laser reflector, which is still in use and can be used to precisely measure the distance between the Earth and the moon. And so it became... Um, a kind of a focus of not only engineering, but science. And then, of course, the fact we could do that meant we had to develop a number of different technologies. And uh, there were multiple uh, offshoots of that that are basically pervasive in our technology these days.
0: Mm. And today, uh, we find, I believe, uh, China might go to the moon, maybe India. The The Russians are st- still interested. In fact, the Russians seem to have the only operating rockets right now. There's a lot of competition up there.
2: There is. And uh, one can can think that this is actually a couple of things. They want to re, uh, reap the benefits that we had also reaped back 50 years ago when we were doing this for the first time. But also there's there's an element of being able to do more and new and different experiments up there. There's a national prestige element to it, of course, but there's also those ancillary technologies that will come from putting a push together to do this.
0: Mm. And private industry uh, is uh, leading the way toward a, a return to human spaceflight. Uh, space what do you think of that?
2: I think that's fascinating, actually, and, and I see that there's a very good chance that this will be a way to put together, uh, say, public-private partnerships um, that can stand, uh, essentially, the costs that are going to come from this and have some true commercial uses, ultimately. Now, a lot of times people will look at that and say, well, yeah, okay, we're going to mine the asteroid, you know, or something like this. But, in fact, there are some experiments that have shown that, for example, the purity of crystals that could be grown in microgravity would allow new kinds of semiconductors to be put together that would not be possible, say, with materials grown on Earth.
0: Thanks to RPI's Dean of the School of Science, Kurt Brenneman. You've been listening to Talk of the Town on Magic 590 plus 100.5. We're heard on 1410 and 96.9 in the North Country. I'm Bob Cudmore.